0: Hey, everybody, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast.
1: Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment.
0: And today, we have a bonus episode for this five week month for you, our Patreon listener questions.
1: All right, Dr. Scott, it's been a while since we've done a listener question episode, like a really long while. I know. <laughs> So the way we're going to do this one is we actually asked our wonderful Patreon members to send us some voice memos. So you are going to hear from them, their questions before we answer them. And we have a nice little bite sized smattering of questions from clinical psychology related to just fun, personal stuff and a question or two that's personal to our listeners. So this should be, it should be fun. I'm looking forward to this so our first question comes from Bridget and let's hear from her hi it's Bridget from New Zealand I hope that my accent isn't too awful to play on the podcast um my question is kind of a double question firstly are there areas that you guys would just not work in because you would find them too triggering um and then alongside that how do you deal with triggering situations that do come up in session All right, Scott, so what do you have to say to Bridget's questions?
0: Okay, so I'm not very far or very isolated in this. I Mm -hmm. really don't feel super comfortable in working in situations where there have been child victims of any kind. I have had even the experience in the last few years, as most of you know, I'm partnered with law enforcement and we you know, go to hospitals after people have been hospitalized. We advocate for things in court. We go do evaluations in the home. We do a lot of different things working with people in the community. And I've had probably in the last probably four years, a couple of times where I've gotten so triggered at what I understand to be happening in the home, not mm-hmm. because of a DCFS report, but because I'm watching interactions between the parent and the child and I'm noticing patterns and I'm seeing things. And like the worst thing for me is feeling powerful. Powerless, like I know it's not reportable. Right. Like I know I can't take immediate action. There's nothing that has any legal teeth that I can do. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes I can do an intervention, but most of the time these situations, especially the triggering ones, I, it's just too far gone. And there have been a couple where my my grizzled, very tough detective partner has kind of like, let's we need to get out of here because yeah. he can see he can see me really getting worked up. So. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, what's your tell that he now knows to pull back those reins? A little bit
0: I think my face gets really tight and my mm-hmm. eyes get like I I have been told that when I'm triggered my eyes kind of sink
1: interesting okay you know yeah. my,
0: I like that something about like I get that that look mm-hmm. thankfully it, it doesn't seem to be anything that has been uncontrollable rage or inappropriate but right. that is something that I guess triggers me is like injustice like the idea of injustice which is you know you kind of have to deal with when you're working in forensics there's a lot of injustice and you have to sit in the gray area a lot when you're working clinically yeah so my hide has gotten very thick for that over the years. But yeah, child victims of any kind. And then I have to say one of the most challenging and not in a particularly good way is criminally oriented access to dramatic personalities, particularly Mm. histrionic and borderline personality Mm. disorder. And let me be very, very clear out there. Anybody who's listening who has a diagnosis for either of these and you are working on it or you're dealing with it as best you can, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about people who have these conditions, but are also actively engaging willingly in criminal activities, and they're just incredibly difficult to deal with. In the community, they're very, yeah. very hard, but I don't have any choice. I have to work with them because it's a case that gets assigned to me and I have to do the best I can do. And
1: Pretty short term, right? I mean, you're not, in, in a sense, you're dealing with them, getting them resources from my understanding of your job, but it's not as if you're working like long term in a locked facility with these on your caseload sort of thing. So right. it kind of feels like, you know,
0: it's... In the best the best case scenario, that yeah. would be it. I would be able to go, oh, let me link you to this person and let me link you to this clinic or then, boom, you're done. And it's not because many times people with personality disorders are help seeking rejectors. Yeah. So yeah. every... And that's one of the problems with this population is that they reject what is being given to them. And there's a reason for that is that the offering of support and compassion and empathy and boundaries is not something that they have been offered likely in a consistent way throughout their Mm -hmm. lives. They don't know how to accept it. Mm -hmm. But what they do know how to do is continue to create chaos and reject it. And that is just really, it takes up a lot of time in community mental health. So these individuals can take up a lot of time when, you know, there are others with more severe chronic illnesses that really need help. But, you know, it's that's part of the the challenge and the incredible fulfillment of working in community mental health in a forensic capacity is I get to see all of this. And and, you know, I even though this is triggering for me, it's also one as being different from working with children. This is one where I get to grow with this. Like I get to like I can I can learn to be stronger. I can learn to be more resilient. I can find a way to offer something or or not offer something in the appropriate way, you know, so that I'm following the all the parameters. Of what my work responsibilities are. So yeah, anyway, those are those are my two that are really the big ones. But I mean, I love, love, love working with the adult children of personality disordered parents. It's incredibly fulfilling work when someone comes into your office and you know, within 20 minutes, you've got the picture of what's going on. Yeah. And you realize like this person is going their the quality of their life is going to change once they get the experience of their life history being validated by someone else Mm -hmm. when someone else actually like when a a therapist can go that was abuse or can say that's not good parenting you deserved better let's talk about that you know that there's just a lot of power that's held in those situations and my experience has been that with the type of therapy you know type of postmodern therapy that i do where you're actually concentrating on the relationship building in order for the individual to develop you can see unbelievable growth, which is really wonderful. And then another one that I'm challenged by is working with geriatric populations, which actually we're coming upon a crisis in this country for all types of support for our geriatric communities. So if anybody's interested in working with geriatric communities, and you're wondering what you want to do with your career, the field is completely open because we have so many aging now. I know two people that work specifically with geriatric populations, and they are the most wonderful kind patient people. They're wonderful psychologists, and they're very fulfilled by what they do. And the staff that I experienced in assisted livings has been for the most part, really kind of remarkable, like amazing people doing amazing work. And I think I'm going to just, you know, share this with our 6000 plus listeners, (laughs) is that I think the reason I get triggered is because I've already kind of been through this twice with my mom and my dad who died of dementia related illnesses. And, you know, seeing people in that last six months as dementia really kicks in is just, it's brutal it's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Probably that's, that's my my three big points there. What about you?
1: So I think I kind of put this into two categories when I listened to her question, I think of the time that I was probably most triggered. And then I think of the areas that I'm like, oh no, I know I don't want to do that sort of work and I've never done it. You know, like you're saying, you kind of size it up based on you. So I think the, and maybe I've talked about this before, but the time I was most triggered was certainly when I was doing sex offender work and there was a, an. Individual who was a former police officer that was there for a sex crime that he had committed against an adult while on duty in the course of his job. Wow. And was so smug and narcissistic and would never even budge in admission or taking responsibility for what he did. And it just made my blood boil. It's like these two things in my life. Yeah. Obviously everything's not black and white, but sort of these two things in my life that I held very specific core beliefs about were colliding.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) So it's identity issues for you too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And it's, you know, kind of all this time later, I think, well, of course he's never going to admit to that, you know? And that's just where he's at? Do I hope that he got some nuggets out of sitting in a group and listening and taking some stuff in? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But yes, incredibly triggering for me and difficult to work with that individual and I'll For the second part of her question, I'll kind of talk about that a little bit. But the other two categories that I was like, nope, I know I don't want any Thing to do with that, that are triggering, I think, would be child victims of sexual abuse, just because, I, I don't know, like that would just crush me every single night that I'd have to go home and deal with that, working with the offenders. Like I've said many times on this show, just, I don't know how I could do it, but I could do it. And I had that healthy compartmentalization and that was that, but there are wonderful, like you said, people in this world to work with that specific population. And then like state hospital, criminally convicted, very, very unwell, you know, mentally unwell folks. It's just nothing that ever looked like it was appetizing to me. I remember seeing videos of Patton State Hospital and documentaries and I was like, nope, you could not pay me enough money to go in, have feces thrown at me, and me come away from the job every day thinking like I didn't make a dent. (laughs) And maybe you can, and I'm sure you can, and there's wonderful people that work there. There are, (laughs) yeah. You and I have... Good friends and colleagues that we've worked with that are at that specific hospital that I'm sure feel like they make a dent and a difference every single day. It's just different than what I conceptualized I wanted to do for my professional career. So I think it's not necessarily the people that are triggering, but it's that aspect of like it didn't line up with the kind of difference I would have wanted to make that is. I don't know if triggering is not the right word, but it just didn't line up for me. So so in Bridget's second part of her question, she's asking, like, how do you deal with a triggering situation? So what would you say is something that's worked for you?
0: So how do you deal? When I was going through sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do, either if I was going to commit to staying in entertainment or branching out into something you know solidly as a as a middle-aged adult I was talking to my therapist and he said well what about this and he was kind of did this kind of open arm expansion Mm -hmm. of his office and I was (laughs) like you want me to clean your office
1: (laughs) (laughs) look around yeah
0: no he goes no I mean what would you would you consider being a therapist and I was like oh god no they're like and I just like ranted about how like I can't stand to hear myself talk and I repeat all this stuff and I just like you know you've got to be bored out of your mind or furious with me and like so there was and now you have a there, podcast there was, there was a you lot of garbage you know, there was a lot of stuff to process there but <laughs> the thing that that ralph shared with me he said look you know it's it's not if you if you are walking out at the end of the day carrying your client's emotions then then mm-hmm. you either didn't get the right education or you didn't get the right training and you didn't mm-hmm. get the right support or supervision yep. but the idea is that you're supposed to learn how to do that and you have people that guide you on on how to do it. So that has been sort of my bellwether throughout the process is making sure that I am constantly developing insight. And, you know, for those of you that are interested in insight, to me, it's just a, a fascinating subject. Insight is so tied to your own personal sense of identity development. And if you're really interested in a great little exercise, go Google the term Johari window, J-O-H-A-R-I window.
1: Oh my gosh, I haven't and heard it's about, that
0: in a while. And I mean, it's just such a simple tool, but it's so cool. Leah was the one that turned me into it.
1: That's right. Oh my! But gosh. it's the
0: idea that there are things that you know about yourself that nobody else knows, and there are things that people know about you that you don't know, and then there's shared information, and then there's this locked room in the back of the building that is the unknown unknowns about who you are. And I think that you know the job as a clinician is to constantly take a jackhammer or a spoon and scrape away at the plaster to open up that other room, so that you're constantly growing in insight. Because if you grow in insight, then you're able to understand what your triggers are, and yeah. if you know Know what your triggers are, you either go and you get supervision, or you go to your own therapy, or you reach into your hopefully well stocked virtual toolbox by your side to take care of yourself. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how you do it. And it, it's interesting, because I know people that don't do that. And you can tell. You can tell in our field, the people who don't take care of themselves, it just, mm-hmm. to me, it's like a neon sign over their head.
1: Yeah, I think I echo all of what you said. And I would add, you know, when you first have that specific thing or Type of person or, you know, like theme that comes up that is triggering to you. Do not say, Oh, I'll just figure whatever that was. I'll figure it out later. Carve some time out.
0: Push it down. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Carve some time out to have this insight, have this reflection, have this self awareness to go, What the hell was that? Why was I feeling that way? Give it the time and energy that it deserves because it's, you know, you're talking about this like self care piece, which is. Hugely important. Just important is making sure you're serving your clients well, right? So it's making sure that you're not doing harm to them because now you got this thing that is triggering to you. So, with that, you know, like Scott said, if you need to consult with somebody, if you need to get your own supervision about this matter to see if you need to work through it or how to work through it. Right. Absolutely. I think as I've gone along in this profession and I've gotten a little older, I would also hope that there are work environments for people to where, yes, you can work through it. But if you need to have a change of a client on your caseload or they need to change clinician, that you have the luxury and ability to do that because that's okay too. Like, don't just try and work through these really tough challenges and grit and bear through it when it would just be easy to say, hey, I cannot work with this client. I won't serve them well with the stuff that I have. They can go to someone else. There's always somebody else.
0: You know, I am so glad you said that. It makes me remember our colleague, Dr. Sarah, who was Mm -hmm. our colleague as an intern. And she is, I'm not sure what her, what she's focusing on now, but when she graduated, she came and worked at the correctional facility that I was at in California. And we even rented each of us rented rooms from another psychologist who lived in the area. So we carpooled together, we worked on the same yard together. And I remember having a really rough month like our caseloads when you work in prison it's a fantastic experience but your caseloads are just off the hook and you know people who work there long term develop just these really good skills for dealing with it you know they really mm-hmm. compartmentalize in a healthy way the work that they're doing and I had not quite yet developed that and I remember being really really angry at one of the clients just for you know typical manipulative stuff that happens with inmates in prisons but it had really pissed me off and I made a statement that was not not nice. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sarah turned to me in the car and she said, that's not you.
1: Mm. Yeah. And
0: I like it. that's all she needed to say was yeah. like that's not you, and I really appreciated it because it felt like you know she knew me after you know I think by that time we had known each other two and a half years or so. But the idea that she would be able to call me on that was very helpful, and it helped me kind of reorient. Like, okay, it's time for some self care. It's definitely time for some supervision. I'm going go to go right to Doctor Vickers, and I'm going to talk to her. And and I got my needs met, and it Good. it made a difference. But sometimes you need that too. You need to surround yourself with people that are going to keep you in line. I think that's really helpful.
1: Great way to put it.
0: So our next question is from Candy B. So Candy B, take it away.
1: Good morning, Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. This is Candy B from L.A.
2: L.A. is in lower Alabama. And I am pursuing my bachelor's in criminology with a minor in military resilience. So my question for y'all today is, I have plenty of the textbooks regarding criminology and i like to look up like the books
1: referenced in those textbooks for more reading however i'm hoping you guys can either tell us your favorites or give us some suggestions of books that are more experience based i've read the roy hazelwood books and john douglas books like that but Are there any others that you would suggest or that are your favorites maybe? Um, Love the show. All right, so I think we curated quite the list. So everyone get your pens and paper ready. I just literally ran over to my home Your library here. I've
0: seen that, yeah.
1: Yeah, but I thought, you know, because she asked in sort of like the criminology realm, but I also love that she's studying like military resilience as well. And I just want to hear more, Candy, about like what area you end up going into. So I put together a little list here. I think since you really enjoyed and have already read you know, all the John Douglas, Roy Hazelwood books, that a very contemporary version of that is Dr. Chris Mahandi's Evil Thoughts, Wicked Deeds. So that just came out in the last few years and is very much case highlights and storytelling while also really talking through what a forensic psychologist can do with, like I, like to say, a special set of skills that, you know, Chris has curated for himself. So there's really some interesting stories in there that I think you'll really like. Also, The Psychopath Inside by Dr. James Fallon is, again, fantastic. Such an easy read for a neuropsych book that really dives into psychopathy. And of course, we've talked about his story many times on this show which is just a nice vein throughout the book. And then an oldie but a goodie, I put the crime classification manual on here, which is by John Douglas and Burgess, Alan Burgess and Robert Ressler. A little outdated, but it is still kind of a roadmap, if you will, to some of the early work that they did in a sort of textbook fashion, but also with case studies in there. So it gives you this breakdown of typologies and different types of offenders and tells you, about the people that they interviewed for that. And then lastly, you know, I was kind of thinking of like, military or law enforcement resilience. And one of the books that I've read in the last year that I absolutely love, which really can be applied to any type of what I call high-performing work groups. It's called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups, and that's by Daniel Coyle. And that was referred to me by a SWAT commander, but it talks about how Google and Pixar and how they work in their groups to just churn out really next level product but work together as a team. And it's again, just like so interesting, a lot of social psychology stuff to digest. So Dr. Scott, what did you put together?
0: Well, first I'm taking down notes because I, I, (laughs) I have the first three and need to reread them, but culture code was one of those that I've heard of it, but I've not read it, but it's
1: so good. uh, If I'm,
0: if I remember correctly, one of my private practice clients who is quite a successful entrepreneur is always reading things like that. And will say in, Session that the secret to my success is reading these types of books.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So I'm really a little bit of a loss here because I haven't read as much outside seminal works like you shared more than textbooks and research articles just because I'm really busy. but
1: And you're prepping for a podcast every week.
0: <laughs> every single week. Every single <laughs> week. But now I'm going to steal your book list. But that being said, I will talk about the things that were sort of my intro drugs that I think are really great pieces that can be bought on Amazon for for pennies, because they've been around so long. But my gateway drug book was Dr. Martha Stout's The Sociopath Next Door. It's really short. And it's so to the point, the thing that I really love is that she gives de identified real world examples that for me were like wake up lessons to be more discerning in who I led into my circle, both professionally and personally. And it actually gave me a, a more dimensional view of personality disorders than I had before. I had never been taught to look at them that way. I got a lot out of it and also led me to her other works like The Myth of Sanity, which is pretty sobering. And then another one, which is really great, The Paranoia Switch, which I highly recommend to everybody. And then, of course, Robert Harris' Without Conscience is a really good one. Huge fan. I am a huge fan of somebody I just discovered during COVID. If you're not aware of this website, everyone, I want you to rush over to a website called Quora, Q U it is a really great website with a lot of contributing people. Yes, there's a lot of like crazy people on there as well. But, yes, there are. <laughs> but there are also some like really great, really well-balanced uh, political discussions. But Dr. Eleanor Greenberg is an experienced psychotherapist and with an analytic background who is just an expert on the wide spectrum of narcissism. And, you know, there's a lot of narcissism is sort of like the flavor of the month now. So we hear a lot of talk on TikTok and YouTube videos that, you know, talk about mental health. And a lot of that stuff is pretty sketchy, to be honest. But Dr. Greenberg writes in a very clear, elegant, no bullshit way about why narcissists do what they do. And that goes back to what we've talked about in our most recent episode about this drive of feeling unbelievable toxic levels of inadequacy that are then compensated for by this overinflated sense of self. But she explains it in such a lovely way. I think it's just really easy to listen to her and to read her. And she has a lot of videos as well. She has a book called Borderline Narcissistic and Schizoid Adaptations. And while that's not directly related to the field of criminology or forensics, I would go so far as to say that it is vital for understanding the drives in criminals who have personality disorders. So I highly, highly recommend.
1: Very nice. I'm gonna put that one on my list. I have not, I haven't even heard of that book. So, but I know you talk about her all the time. You quote her a lot and get a lot of your understanding from, from her. So, all right. Our good friend, Nick has Nick hands down the most controversial question of the day. So let's hear (laughs) it. Oh man.
0: Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, what could go, what could go wrong? Hi, this is Nick Amell from the Tennis Podcast, longtime listener of LA Not So Confidential, longtime Patreon member. For those that don't know, Dr. Shiloh has been on my show many times as a sidekick host, and that leads me to my question. I want to know on this show, on LA Not So Confidential, which one of you is the star host and which one of you is the sidekick host? Thanks.
1: Well, I'm curious. What's your take? Is there a star host and a sidekick host on our show?
0: Oh, I think of myself as the sidekick. I think of myself (laughs) as an annoying sidekick, but (laughs) I also would say that that's one of the greatest things about this collaboration is that we both just get down and dirty and we both do the work. I I do know that this wouldn't get done if it wasn't for your organization. Clearly, like you're the one.
1: I'll back your play on that one.
0: You drive all that. And like, no matter how many gadgets I have with how many reminders, it's always like, what the fuck? What did I forget? Like, we're doing that? Okay, give me an hour. Give me an hour. Let me pull it together. You know, so I... somehow we make it work, but that's literally a story of my life.
1: I, so like, there's been this viral TikTok audio sound lately where, and I picture you in, in my head. So I'm going to say like, you were the star where it's like, I'm the talent. I'm not supposed to worry about things like that. Oh. <laughs> there's just people doing all sorts of hilarious things, but like- <laughs> I'm the talent. I'm not supposed to remember what we're talking about today. Just put a Just microphone put, in put my a face. card in
0: front of me and let me let me read. Yeah,
1: no, I you know, this isn't one of those shows where like one week you come with something next week I come with something, even though that would make it very, very equal. But the amount of work we both put into this, I think is super, super equal. And I don't know. I think our audience loves you more. So I'm going to say you're the star and I'm the (laughs) sidekick.
0: Oh, I don't think so. I think you're like
1: the personality. I'm just the organizer logistics person or something. (laughs) This is such an introspective question, actually. It is.
0: I mean, I don't agree, but I respect what (laughs) you're saying. But I would also say that there are people like, and this, I'm not saying this in a pejorative sense at all. I'm not trying to cast aspersion on any of our listeners or anything because we have so many wonderful listeners. But you know, and you know what? we're really lucky even with our uh, the listenership that we have we rarely get like really awful awful reviews like every yeah. once in a while we'll get one that is either completely off the rails and the off the rails ones are easy to go like okay oh, well i see what go is. go have some sleepy time tea and you'll be fine right. but they're those the negative ones mostly like if they're coming after you they're coming after you for your law enforcement background it's yes. without fail
1: Absolutely. It's always Absolutely. because
0: you're a cop lover and that we're doing copaganda.
1: Well, I am. My husband's a cop, so I'm a well, cop lover, you know several times a week
0: (laughs) several times a week oh my god you're so young enjoy it while you got it but you know the criticism i get is for thinking being overrated no what what we were called recently like a third rate forensic psychologist which was like and i'm usually like like, offended by stuff and then i thought that's so out of left field like if you even knew a fraction of what you and i really do in our day-to-day lives yeah like That to me, I was like, I'm that's personal. I must have said something that offended you, you know, yeah. that you, or you perceived it as being offensive. But I feel like sometimes I get more of the anger. You get the, mm. the cop loving stuff, but so I feel like I'm triggering I get the
1: to people, which way. is
0: understandable because I am a big personality and you I'm certainly are. Yeah. You know, so I, I get in that. I'm not way. everybody's cup of tea. I'm not even I'm not everybody's rusty bucket of bog water. So <laughs> you do you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you do you. Just keep writing those one star reviews. One star is a star. Yeah, that's so funny because you and I don't talk about reviews and like negative reviews. And that's kind of my unwritten rule is I don't like, you know, posting about it and all that stuff. I'll make a funny TikTok every once in a while that doesn't speak to one directly, but it's, you know, all unjust. But yeah, I think since you're the star, you need to start getting your face on the TikTok because... I'm the one looking like a jackass over there all the time.
0: Well, the TikTok to be banned. I mean, like we're all. Oh, they've selling... been saying that since
1: 2020. Man. No. Anyway, thanks, Nick, for taking us down this rabbit hole. Yes. I
0: wasn't expecting that. But thank you, <laughs> You guys, you, Nick.
1: please go check out the 10-ish podcast. If you have not, I don't know why I'm holding up this coaster because nobody can see this. That's but... super
0: cute, though, that you just did that. I really like love... it. It's like I... we're on TV. I'm I, show you this.
1: I have the tennis podcast coaster right here, and it takes care of all my drinks. You don't hear me slamming down my LaCroix hibiscus, naturally essenced <laughs> sparkling water. Anyway, Nick's show is one of our faves. Love him. Yeah,
0: they're great. So next up, we have Melissa with a personal question about another form of entertainment. Very good variety yes. of questions here. Absolutely. Take it away, Melissa.
1: Hey, Dr. Scott and Shiloh, this is Melissa from Palm Springs, California. It recently occurred to me that I don't remember you guys ever mentioning your favorite bands or music preferences, and I'd love to hear about it. Thanks. Okay, why does it seem like when someone asks about your musical taste that it's like instantly when you answer you're going to be judged on like your coolness
0: because you are
1: (laughs) (laughs) i love this question i think maybe we've answered it before but i'm here to entertain it again but i swear from whether i was back in high school and someone asked me what kind of music i listen to to now i'm like (gasps) are they gonna disagree with me or think i'm less cool of a person. (laughs) I don't know why it just triggers that. Let's see. So speaking of high school, really anything 90s is, you know, that's my coming of age period. So I feel like I instantly connect with 90s hip hop, of course, grunge, R&B, and even country. But I'm saying right now, fight me on this 90s country is the only good country (laughs) music. But also this period of time brought me to love my favorite band ever, which is the very L.A punk band, Bad Religion. So they are a thousand years old and I still go and see them almost every time they're in Los Angeles with really the same little group of people, which has built over the years in high school. It was my best friend, Gina and I, that would go to their shows and then we have continued and other people have joined us. And so it's kind of cool every few years to get our band back together to go see Bad Religion, which I love, love, love. But my overall favorite type of music that I listen to on a daily basis these days, how music, So I'm a big Boris Breja fan. Every single morning when I'm getting ready, I listen to my friend 2AR who streams live on TikTok every morning, 4.30 a.m. our time. And that's when I wake up. So I get up, get in the shower when I'm putting my makeup on, doing my hair. He's streaming live for an hour, hour and a half. So join me. If you guys want to hop in there, <laughs> whatever time zone you're in. So it's four thirty-five, thirty-six, 2AR underscore music, I think is his handle over there. And then I just became a Patreon member of this adorable EDM couple. They're on YouTube. They're called Flavor Trip. And they're these traveling nomads in Europe. They live out of their van. They pick these really cool places to film a DJ set in front of. Oh and then they cook a meal during the DJ set. So they like trade on and off like mixing music and cooking and they're so freaking cute and they just started a patreon so i joined and i have a live video call with them in a couple of weeks because i'm one of the first like 20 patreon members <laughs>
0: that, you have to we gotta you have to post that that's oh so my gosh, cool.
1: they're so adorable they're that's like adorable. Oh, you have a true crime podcast jimmy is the guy and amy's a girl she, and i think it was amy writing she's like jimmy loves true crime <laughs> i like that's so cute so anyway that's me. What about you?
0: Well, I don't consider my music taste to be cool at all. I mean, they, it really isn't. <laughs> just um,
1: self-admitting up front.
0: It just isn't. And I mean, I... I have people I went to college with that were, who are lovely, and they were exceptionally cool then, and they're exceptionally cool now, and they know so much more about music than I do, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, I didn't relate to music in that way. But I, I mean, I, in many ways, I feel like mine's pretty mundane, but with some quirks. I love standards or what are known as the Great American Songbook, yeah, as well as like the modern covers or spinoffs of them. So I like this. I mean, I go all. The way to bizarre new age ambient music that mm-hmm. actually is kind of self medicating for my ADHD. I use That's that stuff awesome. because it's it's fantastic. It, like I can put on just the weird. My, my neighbors must think is he a witch or something because <laughs> is he doing li- a
1: seance? <laughs> I'm just
0: listening to the strangest stuff and it. But it, they don't realize it's putting me into the zone where I can yeah. you know knock out a, a twenty page psych report or I can write an episode or something. I also have these specific channels that I've created on Amazon and Pandora that are lounge singers and i just love lounge singing like i wish lounge bars and piano bars would come back like i would i just it it, there was when i was coming out and going out to bars for the first time in the 80s and i first time i went to chicago there were still piano bars and it was so great but there's a, a a group that's been around for a couple of decades called Pink Martini
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then there's old lounge singers like Julie London, the very famous Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, then newer artists that do instrumentals like Chris Bodie and David Benoit but my tolerance of sort of new age or smooth jazz like I can't take clarinet.
1: Having so visions of Ron Burgundy in my so, head.
0: So oh I know like well he <laughs> he plays jazz flute.
1: Oh, but got like it. Kenny okay. G, whatever. Like,
0: Same thing. like Kenny G with the clarinet. Like, there's something about it that, that sets me on edge. Like, I, it's almost like a baby crying. I can't. Oh my God. It just sends me over the cliff. But another trivia thing, you know, I grew up in North Alabama, and my wonderfully insane father actually had the first and the biggest bluegrass music festivals in the nation nice. in the 70s in this piece of land that we owned in the mountains of Alabama. And I got exposed very early to the bluegrass greats. Like I got to meet Bill Monroe and all these other artists and Emmylou Harris actually even came and performed when she was a teenager. But I love bluegrass music, like real old school bluegrass is just it's genius if you if you understand music and you understand what they're doing that's based on the historical influences of like Appalachian influence and Irish and all these other things uh-huh. that have come across. I just love it to this day. And I like folk. And then I also like really obscure Appalachian music that's pre-radio. So it's the it's the stuff that hasn't been influenced when radio started in the 20s. And then I love 1950s country music like Patsy Cline and all those greats. But okay. I'm not, you know, 50s it's
1: country music is country music, too all
0: thank you. And then like in 70s California rock, like the uh. Eagles, Stevie Miller and then you what you and I did, like we took our husbands to Hart mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and Nancy Wilson at the Bowl, which was like Just unbelievable. Amazing. it was so great
1: one of the best concert experiences. But ever.
0: Mine's eclectic, but like every time, you know, I've, I have good friends that are like, oh, wait, you haven't heard this album. I mean, well, how can you not have heard this album? And this person okay. actually <laughs> constructed this when they were cooking chicken at an altitude of 10,000 feet surrounded by You're um, like Mong- <laughs> Mongolian stringed instruments made out of yak hair. Like oh, I don't yeah,
1: it could be a very snooty thing to be into and yeah. learn about, that's for sure. Do you, so what year was the Bluegrass Festival? I mean, do you think, do you think there's any video footage that, Someone has archives somewhere on that? How cool would that be?
0: I don't know. But if anybody's interested in looking for it, there's a couple of Facebook pages. But the place that my family owned for that period of time was in sort of north central Alabama called Horsepins 40. And they've got a web page. It's owned by a great family now. It's very And they'd still do music festivals, but not really to the extent that that we did them. But it's a Beautiful, beautiful piece of land in the mountains. And if anybody out there is listening and that name strikes a bell and you have footage, let us know. I'm sure there's some around there. I mean, this was all before you had sort of the shoulder top VHS. This would have, you know, but there's probably something around there somewhere.
1: See, if we were allowed to like go back in time and I could go party with you, the perfect thing would be for you and I to go to like Electronica Music Club in like the late 80s together <laughs> and just yeah. freaking party all night. That would oh, be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just have one night with no consequences to yeah, be able and to do all that. All I'll say
0: is that like <laughs> in that fantasy night, my there would be a lot of substances in my body and my eyes would be as big as saucers. Yeah, <laughs> if, we were, if that were to be.
1: Oh, yes, I know. All right. Well, let's get to our next question from Cindy
2: R. Hi Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott and all the other listeners, Uh, my name is Cindy, I'm from Vienna, Austria and I have a personal question and that is, how to deal with the pushy mom? Um, I'm neurodivergent, but not more on the highly sensitive side rather than the autistic side, so that means that my brain is wired differently. It's a little bit like um, autism, but um, I don't have autism, I am um, highly sensitive. And my mom, I think to this day, doesn't accept the fact that I'm neurodivergent. And um, she does push my boundaries. And uh, when I want to be left alone or when I say no, then it's no. But she doesn't accept no. And um, it's very exhausting for me every time I visit my mom. Uh, or I try to make some time I visit my mom because she pushed my boundaries. And I don't know what to do with her. So, um, yeah. I love the podcast and, um, and everything you do and yeah. Bye. All right. Mm.
1: You want to take the lead on this, Scott? So she's got a couple things she's talking about here. Obviously, a pushy mom who she says pushes her boundaries. She's also describing herself as neurodivergent. But the way she's talking about that is she's really highly sensitive. So do you think that makes a difference in this case?
0: It can. But then that's that kind of helps me formulate my answer. One is that I think we want to be careful about the way we word things like when when somebody says you're intimidating. What they really would be better suited in saying is I am intimidated by you. So I would draw a parallel that my mom pushes my boundaries. So that makes me question. And I don't know you, Cindy, so we're not giving therapy, but like what I, the question I asked then is, are you allowing your boundaries to be inferred upon, you Mm. know, or, or is that difficult to be able to hold those? So I have a kind of a complex way of looking at it. I think first we have to challenge our own awareness. Like we have to really have a good like conversation with ourselves where we kind of calm things down, we create some distance. And I mean, like, and this is what I teach people to do in my private practice is that if you're in a situation, you know, where you're being triggered, or this is sort of a recurring issue of some type to imagine yourself if you you can visualize, I don't really haven't really found a way to do this for people who can't internally visualize, Mm -hmm. but visualize, you know, visualize in your head where you're standing right now. And then you visualize that a part of you separates from your physical body and you step back, you take a step out of your body, and then you step up. So you're in this position where you're looking at the situation like it's pieces on a chessboard. You're up Looking down, you've got like, so you're going to detach emotionally, and you're going to really look analytically at what's going on so that you really like, okay, is this person really speaking to me in the tone of voice that I perceive them to be speaking in? Or is it possible that I am misperceiving it? Or I am so triggered by this that it feels exaggerative to me. And then that's one part of it, you know, to develop that insight into what's really going on. You know, you can journal about it, write things down about what your feelings are, what your automatic thoughts are coming from that. But then also, you know, if you have a support circle of friends, I mean, and I mean, real friends, like, you know, friends that, Love you so much that they're not always pumping sunshine up your ass. They're yep. they're calling you on your stuff. Somebody that can say, well, Scott, you know, you didn't do your best work right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you were triggered and that was an unpleasant situation, but you were kind of an asshole. You know, you pushed yeah. back, you were harsh, you got that look on your face. You know, that's a friend who will call you to the carpet on it. And if you have somebody like that, that can give you that very valuable, rational, third party perspective, I think that's really, really helpful. And then do you know actually what boundaries are? And, you know, I thought I knew for years what boundaries were, and I was incredibly wrong, Mm. because my basis of what I grew up with was so skewed about family expectations, personal expectations, it was just really, really skewed. So as an adult, I had to go like actually research it and read and figure out what are appropriate boundaries for an adult individual and their parent or a teenage individual and their parent. And those change, that they really do change. Like the boundaries change when you officially legally become an adult. And then it changes when you emotionally become an adult, right? So constantly reassessing that is very important and understanding what those are. Educate yourself, read up on them. Then you start experimenting with implementing boundaries while you are managing to keep yourself cool so you're not being reactive as you're trying to integrate this new set of skills and then also this is one no is a complete sentence Hmm. no is an absolute complete sentence When people are incurring upon your boundaries, if you want to make it a little softer, no, thank you. No, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And not with a modifier of I can't do that right now. Or no, I don't want to do that. Or no, that really doesn't reflect my value system. Or no, I'm not able to speak to you right now about that situation. Perhaps we'll be able to speak about it in the future. But if you have porous boundaries, and usually that happens with family members, learning to say no is, is very important, no matter what their reaction is. And that's part of the strengths you have to develop. And then, you know, especially when it's, I don't know what your situation is out there, but when you're financially entwined with a parent, that complicates things a lot. And you have some really hard decisions to make about, okay, well, do I have options? Can I walk away from this? Because maybe you're in a pickle where you can't, you know, you right. financially can't do it. So then you're going to have to find a way to make it work. And sometimes that is healthy avoidance if you're working with someone who is toxic. So I Those know that's great. a lot of information, but that's sort of the, the gist of what I help people adjust to, especially I love how this dovetails into the previous question, because this is the type of stuff that I'm teaching to people who have narcissistic parents.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I know you're a perfect person to answer it. And, you know, I would just, the only thing I would add is that when you put boundaries up for the first time or you sort of reestablish them, because you're always allowed to reestablish them if you feel like what has been in place is not working or they're just not getting it, that person is going to, I I explain it like they walk up and they see this fence for a first time, you know, kind of put their hands in this chain link fence and they're like, what the hell is this? And they get kind of, You know, crazy about it and push on it a bit. And you just have to keep it constant. You know, consistency is key with it. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're saying keep it cool, but also, you know, make sure you keep it in place. And you're not like, oh, oh, never mind. Let me take that chain link fence down for you just because they're reacting. If you keep it consistent, then next time they come back to the fence, they'll go, oh, I remember this. Okay. This fence is here. And, Yeah. I mean, I think always keeping in mind that that's all you can do is that how they're acting on the other side of the fence is nothing you can control. And like you were saying, you know, if you're financially entwined, that's difficult, but maybe also another evaluation, the frequency of the visits to this person, the duration of the visits to this person, does that need to change and shorten for your own well-being so yeah lots of lots of good points there thank you for that question cindy so our last question comes from our patreon member and chiropractor by day and balmer by night
0: (laughs) i like think this guy (laughs) has to have a show I'm sorry, we I like that he needs. Oh my a show. gosh. this is fantastic.
1: <laughs> so he comes to us with a question that he wrote at sort of the eleventh hour before we get in this. So I will read it. And yes, we're still working on trying to find a way to have Scott and I interview him, probably not live, but we're all we're trying to record it and then we'll release it to our Patreon members on the heels of our funeral home crimes. that's that was the nexus there. So, Richard's question is Now that Robert Blake has died, are you able to do a podcast regarding Bonnie Bakley? I embalmed her. Da, da, da. I know. So, this is an interesting question. And, and to me, I thought, oh, okay, like it speaks to like topics we can or will speak to in the podcast. And I think, you know, we get so many wonderful topic and episode ideas from people. And sometimes a lot of, my canned email back to them is, this is like a really cool case or really cool topic. We need to find the nexus of, you know, what the formula of our show is to make this fit. And then, you know, that's how it sort of goes on the list. And then sometimes we find like, okay, this is the case they recommended. Here's the forensic site topic we're covering. Ah, those go together and we can make it happen. I think, you know, there was really nothing with Robert Blake being alive that was keeping us (laughs) from talking about it, perhaps. Because
0: he was exonerated, right?
1: (laughs) He was acquitted. And even if he had been found guilty, I think the only thing is that it is an LA crime. With our jobs, we have to be careful because those investigators. It is still recent enough. I think those investigators could still be in our universe a little bit so just what I wanted to speak to with this question is that I recently heard an interview with Bonnie's daughter Rose Lenore Blake and her take on the fact that and this was before he had died so you guys probably know that last year Wondery came out with a big serial podcast about this murder Bonnie's murder and So this was, and I'm so sorry, I forget where I heard Rose talking about this, but she was talking about the experience of having this huge podcast blow up. She's now 19 and just her life being talked about her parents, her mom, you know, the relationship, obviously strained relationship with her father after all of this, because she was just, she was an infant when this all went down. And she was raised by Robert Blake's, one of his daughters from another relationship or another marriage after all of this happened. So it was just interesting to hear her speak as being sort of that silent, indirect victim and how hurtful it was to have all of this brought up again in what she felt like was a pretty insensitive way. Always having her mom being painted in an insensitive way seems to be a theme that she's had to live with, as well as feelings about whether or not her father killed her mother, yet him being acquitted. So I don't know. I think if if we talk about it, it would have to be the right nexus. I would and also right want to be yes, yeah, it, especially. We should have the right perspective always, but it always sort of recalibrates you when you hear someone that is really experiencing this in their life from the inside out to just orient us back to that again, I guess.
0: I think it's a fascinating story, and I wasn't even really considering all of the points that you're talking about, but I'm not up to speed on everything that has come out since Mm-hmm. that podcast came out so I would have to go back and and listen and reorient myself to everything that happened.
1: Yeah, it's been a but while. But it sounds I mean...
0: like, you know, it's the thing that I find interesting about that aside from the surviving child's experience of sort of unresolved grief and unresolved history. Like this is one of those examples of complex grief of you mourn the idea of something lost that never had an opportunity to develop. She mm-hmm. never had the opportunity to be with her mother. She never had the opportunity to have a relationship with her father that was not complicated by right. that. And that's really complex. And I myself have had a challenge with someone who has a similar situation. And there's not a, not a lot of way for me to work in there. Like, mm-hmm. so I would want to be respect super, super respectful of her. I would say that that case, I want to be respectful in saying this, and I, because Bonnie has been portrayed through the initial like date. Line and all those things in a certain way. But that's also not to say with all respect to her daughter, that's not to say that there wasn't like a lot of indication that there were problems, like interpersonal huh. problems between the two of them that were yeah. substantial and right. reported and historical. But I I do think a, an interesting take on this or a question that isn't necessarily about, you know, Ellie, not so confidential in forensic psychology, but the idea of what Adults do when they're lonely, Mm -hmm. and the connections you make when you are isolated, and what you're willing to give up for the idea of connection and community. And sometimes we don't make the best decisions when we're in a place. So I'm not really sure that this is a situation where these two people should have been together. I'm not really, this is as much as I know about what I know given Mm. the information I have is that I think this was one of those situations where they really, this was not a good mix for a long-term relationship. Not justifying anything that happened. I'm not making any excuses, nothing, but you know, there are like, I always want to give an example of a lot of us have in our social circles, you'll have a couple where you'll look at your friends and go, Oh my God, they've been, they've been at each other's throats for 30 years. Why? I know, and they're doing it in front of us. Like we don't want to see it. We're tired, you know. So those things happen, mm-hmm. and it happens mm-hmm. for a reason, and they're sustained for a reason. But it seems like we probably need to be more educated on this. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe we've just talked ourselves out of doing it. Although I do think it's a fascinating case, but we do want to be respectful to to Rose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But great question and very timely. Just with his passing, I also think it brings up that age old conundrum of like loving the art of an artist who has potentially done something bad. Yeah. (laughs) Even though he was acquitted, it feels a little OJ ish where you're like, Hmm, This was a pretty darn good investigation. Yeah, and I'm
0: not making excuses for anyone, I think, but when it comes to resilience and understanding and looking at the bigger picture, there are a lot of unbelievably talented artists who were completely fucked up with completely fucked up value systems. And the whole nature of art is about how the viewer interprets it. No matter what, how narcissistic the artist was, it's about the interpretation of that art. So all of us need to be more responsible in looking historically at, what the art contributed to the world and separating it from maybe what the artist did to the detriment of the world.
1: Yeah, I think that was something we talked about in our Kanye episode, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, such great questions. This was so fun. I'm glad we set aside some time to do this again. So it is the, gosh... We are just plugging away here through spring. You and I are getting ready for some festivals. Please check our live events page on our website to keep up to date with that. It always has links where you can get tickets and discount codes and all of that in one place, which is always nice. And we work hard at keeping our website updated. So the resources for every episode, putting up descriptions and our YouTube videos, please go over and subscribe to our YouTube as well. We're having still about one guest a month. There will not, be one this month because we're doing this bonus episode instead. But let us know what kind of people you'd like to hear from. If you know, they're not already in our professional, personal social circle, we'll try and find someone if you guys are interested in a particular research area or profession and have a chat with them like we do. That sounds great.
0: Thank you guys. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential.
1: Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution License. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com You can find us on Instagram at la-not-so-podcast, on Twitter at la-not-so-pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
0: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
1: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
0: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on L.A. Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.